This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of the Pleroma or the Fullness. And the subject we are immediately considering this evening <coughs> is the Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of Scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for just a little while and read together from the book of Esther, chapters 1 and 2. Last time we were together with the epistle to the Colossians before us, we were considering the prayers of the Lord's prisoner, linking together those which we find in Ephesians and Philippians, as well as this one in Colossians. Well now we move from asking and seeking and knocking, which is one of the definitions of prayer, you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, to find that asking and seeking and knocking lead to receiving and finding and opening. For the moment we come to the verse now before us, we cease to pray and we commence to praise, giving thanks unto the Father. In the epistle to the Ephesians, the apostle put that first. His very first note after the salutation was, Blessing be the God and Father, and then gives the reasons why. In this epistle, he's put the prayer first, and then leads from the prayer onto this thought of giving thanks unto the Father. So let us consider what was the burden of this thanksgiving. And I believe we shall find grounds here for great rejoicing for ourselves. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. First thing to notice is, verse 12, that all this is in, not light merely, but in the light. The article is there. In the light. And then in chapter 1, 22, it is all to be in his sight. In the light, we are made partakers and all sufficient for the inheritance of the saints, and in his sight, we are to be presented holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. What will even be Esther when the time comes, won't we? She was presented, and she was acceptable, as we shall see a little bit presently again when we look back. But think of this. Poor outside Gentiles described in Ephesians 2 as hopeless and Christless and godless are going to be in the light without blinking and in his sight without shrinking. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? And that's one of the definitions of the word grace. Almost too good to be true, but God has said it and so it stands. First of all, let us notice the sphere in which this is going to operate. It's the inheritance of the saints. Well now, in the ordinary course, the word saint refers to a person. It's not many of us who would naturally think of an angel as a saint, but they are called angels, they are called saints in the Old Testament. Behold, the Lord came with ten thousand of his saints, and another passage says he came with so many thousand angels. But this, is, this isn't to do with angels. This is to do with a sphere. Because the word translated saint in the New Testament also means a place. 
So I'm going to turn you immediately to the same expression in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now that word holy places is this word saints. Christ didn't enter into saints. He entered into a saintly or a holy place. And if you look at verse 12 of this same chapter, chapter 9 verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. And yet once more in the 8th verse, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. So we have in this chapter three times the very self-same expression of the saints, which means a holy place, and then it tells you it's heaven itself, where Christ is. Well, now there are many other passages which would supplement this. There's one that occurs in Ephesians, which I think we ought to turn to. And there are others that will occur to you afterwards in your own study. Ephesians 2, 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You say, well, fellow citizens with the saints, that means one saint with another. Yes, that's the way the authorised version got over the difficulty. But there's no word with here. This is the same expression. Fellow citizens of the saints. Well, you can't be a fellow citizen of a saint, can you? But you can be a fellow citizen of a holy place. Yes, their citizenship is in heaven itself, where Christ sits. So you see, buried in this expression, we have an emphasis upon the holy sphere of the inheritance of this people. Well, now you see, the more we stress, the more we stress the holiness of the sphere in which you're going to be blessed, the more we stress what a tremendous need we have. We shouldn't have been permitted to go into a tabernacle built on earth by men under the penalty of death. But what about going into heaven itself? So we come to the next expression. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of that inheritance of the saints or the holy place in the light. Oh, no wonder he started thanking God if this is true. To make us meet. Look at verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, they're the ones that are made meet for the inheritance of heaven's holiest of all in that light. Fancy that. What does this word meet? Well, it's nothing to do with a meeting place. That's not... Um, that's only accidental, although it does refer to a meeting place doctrinally. None of us will ever be made meet if we bypass what the mercy seat stands for, for all our meekness is found there where he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and the righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ was given to us. But that's only accidental, the accidental being meet. 
The word itself occurs quite a number of times and I think it would pay us because it belongs to our peace and our calling to just be sure of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 Now supposing we put the word meat in here for a moment. Not that we are meat of ourselves to think anything of ourselves but our meatness is of God who also hath made us ministers. Meekness. But you see the word is the word sufficient. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. We thank him who has made us all sufficient for the inheritance of the saints of the holy place in the light. Now that's going beyond our knowledge. We don't quite know, quite, that's putting it too mildly, we don't know what will be required of us when we reach our glorious sphere of blessing. All that we know that it's far above principality and power and might and dominion, all that we know it is where Christ sits at the right hand of God, but what would be expected of us if we were suddenly invited to the home of a nobleman or going, one might as well go the whole thing through, we suddenly received an invitation to Buckingham Palace. Well, in spite of the fact that I don't care very much what I look like and get some lectures about it, I should have to toe the line now. No good me turning up as I am now. See? You'd have to immediately say, well, what's required? Oh, yes. A very strict etiquette is to be observed in the manner of approach, in the things you wear, and it couldn't be otherwise. But if, if that's going into the presence of an earthly monarch whose breath is in her or his nostrils, what about going into the presence of the Lord God Almighty? And yet he says he made us meet. John the Baptist used this word. I think it's John the Baptist. Matthew the third chapter and the eleventh verse. Let's be sure. Matthew three, eleven. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not meet. Not, it's not our ordinary word worthy. I'm not meet, I'm not sufficient for it. Of course it involves not worthy. Whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. And then one other occurrence, which I think is quite valuable, that is the 17th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Because you'll find that it is partly a legal term. Acts 17, verse 9. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Security. That's the word. Well now, think of all those things together. There's been a security made, or obtained. We've been covered for all possible emergencies for everything that can be required of us to stand in that holy presence. Now, of course, you know why we read that section of the book of Esther. You see, these women, according to the law of the land of that day, they had to appear to see which one of them, if one of them was to be selected by the king to take the place of Vashti, 
And then you see what they had to do. Six months they were being treated with ointments and unguents and six months with perfumes and whatnot. And then at the end of the year, this is the bit that I think is to be watched. Every one of those women were given the option. They could choose whatever they liked to go into the presence of the king. Now if I were one of these people who think about making spectacular films, oh my, what could you do with this? Look at the, there's no number given you. You could have dozens and dozens of women dressed up in silks and satins and velvets and pearls, I don't know what, all choosing from a fabulous Aladdin's cave and making themselves up to the last thing to go into the presence of the king. And in they go, one after another, and he looks at them, and they pass out, and they never see him again. But Esther, what about Esther? She said to the Chamberlain, whatever you appoint, I accept. So we don't know what she had. But that attitude of heart and mind is imprinted on the book. And she went in. And perhaps she didn't look anything like so spectacular as the one that went in front of her. But there's a picture of ourselves, friends. We cannot possibly pick and choose what we will have when we are presented at heaven's court. We wouldn't, in, we wouldn't dream of doing it, or if we did, we'd put it away immediately. But we know this, as the hymn puts it once, all the fitness he required is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. And with that, he covers every possible requirement that God in heaven and all the principalities and powers and the whole association of heaven's holy place can demand. Now, I might have said nothing about it. I might have said, meekness means fitness and gone on. But I thought, my, this is worth stopping for a minute, isn't it? Just to make it possible that we realise something of the magnificence of this provision for that day which is to come. So we, we remember that it is in the light and then it is in his sight. Now you saw I was a little bit perturbed just now because I'd gone down yesterday to the uh, cupboard downstairs and I fished out a hymn book because I very much wanted to quote a verse from a hymn. And then I looked for it and it wasn't here. And then our brother Ganatli went down and brought one that wasn't the one I wanted. And eventually we find it was tucked under there. So here it is. It's a hymn you know well enough. But let's read it again, shall we now, and think, well, that man who wrote that hymn, his name was Billy, the man who wrote that hymn had somehow sensed the wonder of his acceptance. So although you may know it as I read it, we shan't begrudge the time to have our minds reminded of this way of putting it. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be when placed within thy searching sight. It shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear the burning bliss but that is surely theirs alone. 
since they have never, never known a fallen world like this. Oh, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated being. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. Now that's a hymn, isn't it? And that is the result of meditating upon Colossians 1, verse 12. So sometimes it wouldn't do us any harm if we said, oh, look at that hymn again. We haven't got it in our hymn book, I'm sorry to say, but it is obtainable, and it does us good sometimes to have it. A hymn can be remembered because it's in verse. You can remember the rhythm and the rhyme of it. And here is an expression which gives some sort of opportunity for ourselves to say, yes, that's just how I feel. So I'm glad we were able to just spare a moment for that. Now shall we look at another expression in this verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us all sufficient to be partakers. We get two words linked together in the scriptures, which have to do with an inheritance. One is part, and one is lot. You remember the rebuke in the Acts of the Apostles. There is neither part nor lot in this matter. Part and lot go together. And I'm going to speak about a passage in the Old Testament, which I dare say most of us know, one that bears upon it that we may not all be quite au okay fait with, and that is Micah, chapter 2. One of the minor prophets, immediately after Jonah, Micah, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, we be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Now that may not speak very much to us for the moment. Keep it in mind while we turn to another one that you may know better, and that is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Here the psalmist is speaking himself. The Lord, verse 5, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. The explanation of his words is that he's referring to the method that was in practice in his day a village would be surrounded by a certain amount of common land. It wouldn't belong to any one particular owner, but it belonged to the village. 
and either once a year or once in three years, according to the system in vogue, the headmen of the village would meet together to decide who was going to have this field and who was going to have that for the next season. And of course everybody was a certain bit on edge because there would be the good ground and the shallow ground and the rocky soil and the thorny patch, just as over our Lord spoke, all round, and it all depended upon picking the right number out of the bag. And so, to try to obviate cheating, a little child too young to be bribed was used. And he put his hand into the bag and pulled out this, whatever it might be, a pebble or a shell or something, and the other one pulled out the number, and that was yours. Said David, Oh Lord, when I think of it, thou maintainest my lot. And even in our English word, we've got the word that's in the Hebrew. M-A-I-N is the word for hand. Manicure, manufacture. There's the word hand. And he says, It was thy hand that went down into the bag and picked out the right number for me. Oh, I have a goodly heritage. My lines have fallen in pleasant places. You see? Well, that's what's, that's what's involved in Colossians 1. Are you going to sit there and let the psalmist, when he was thinking about his inheritance, take those words, and you're, you're unmoved about it, but surely you say, if he can say that, I can say it more. When I think of my inheritance, of the holiest of all, in the light, and made sufficient for it. Surely his hand went down into the bag when that was chosen and my number came up. If we use that expression, and we're we're legitimately doing so, but he's given us the word lot, in the word allotment, and he gave us into the word inheritance, in the original scriptures. So again, you see, we have much indeed to be thankful for, in this wonderful gift of God. Well now we move from verse 12, to verse 13. And when we move, we move from darkness, from light, back to a reference to darkness. It's reminding us that if we have an inheritance of holy ones, or in the saints, or in heaven's holiest of all, in the light, that's very, very, very different from what we were by nature. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's been done. First of all, the word delivered. Then the word in verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Two different words, with two different connotations. Redemption particularly deals with the person's own individual sin. But the word translated delivered practically never refers to anything that you have done but what somebody else has done to you. Over and over again we read in the Old Testament to be delivered out of the hand of his enemies, to be delivered from this, to be delivered from that. That's the word that's used. The one uh, example that um, I will give you is Paul's own testimony in the uh, Second Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. He's using this same word, he wrote 2 Timothy, and he wrote Colossians, he's using the same word, and the Lord shall deliver me 
from every evil work and will preserve me. And in the 17th verse, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And Creamer, in his theological Greek lexicon, he calls attention that it never refers to anything that you've done or your behaviour. It always refers to some outside power that has you in its grip. And he says, you were in a grip right enough. Now this word, outside power, which I've said, is called here the power of darkness. There are two words translated power, perhaps more, I forget, but two. One is dunamis, which gives us our word dynamite and dynamo and dynamics. Well, that is the one that should be translated power. But the word we have in front of us is the word that is better translated by the word authority. Authority. Supposing we look at 1 Peter 3, 22. And there you will see that the very authorised version, when it had an opportunity to give a translation again, has changed the word power to authority. 1 Peter 3, 22, speaking of Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So he's got authorities and powers, two different things. That's the word, authority. You remember the, <coughs> you remember the way in which a Roman soldier once replied to the Saviour. He always said, oh, I wouldn't ask you, Lord, to come all the way home with me to my house. Or speak the word only. And my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority. And when I say to this man go, he goeth. I don't know whether he said he goeth, but you know how he would say it, don't you? A Roman centurion. When I say go, he goes. And when I say come, he comes. And the Lord looked at him and said, I haven't seen such great faith, not in Israel. He said, I also am a man under authority. I'm looking at you, Jesus of Nazareth. And I see you have come with authority. And if what, if my word goes, how much more yours? He was on the right lines, wasn't he? That's authority. Well now come back to Ephesians. Because the word is here. Chapter 2. First of all, I mean in chapter 1, 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Here we have the word once more translated power, the authority. Or look at chapter 2. When in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, the authority. And in chapter 6, Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against authorities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. Authorities. And then you, you travel down the story to the book of the Revelation. And you remember in that dark day when the beast rises to take control over this poor distracted world 
the serpent or the dragon, he gave to him his throne and his great authority. So here we have, first of all, a peon of praise, when he's looking to the goal of our salvation. A peon of praise, giving thanks unto the Father, who hath made us all sufficient to be partakers of the inheritance of the holiest of all, in the light. And then he turns the other way round and says, oh, what a contrast from the condition and the position I found myself in at first, in the darkness. Not only in the darkness, but under the authority of it. Just the authority of darkness. And so, we have the idea of being delivered and snatched. And that is not all. Just now we were making a little comparison between ourselves and Esther. Well, now we'll make a little comparison between ourselves and Enoch. Well, we are told that he walked with God. And he was not. And could not be found. For he was translated. Translated. Now we use the word translate when we are speaking about languages. We carry over from one language into another. And that's the meaning of the word translated, its initial meaning. Should we just make sure about these? First of all, we'll refer to the actual quotation in Hebrews 11, just for the sake of completeness. Chapter 11 of Hebrews. You know there are a series of Old Testament believers who are brought before us in this chapter 11, and they are grouped in pairs. Two of them, Abel and Enoch, are a pair. Abel died for his faith. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Two different points of view entirely, yet exhibiting much the same at the end. Look further down chapter 11 for another pair. Verse 22 and 23. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, verse 24, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There's two men. Joseph. Joseph, by faith, went down into Egypt. Moses, by faith, comes out of Egypt. Mo- Joseph, goes down into Egypt and becomes practically almost a royal person sitting on the throne and Moses was given the offer to be a royal person and turns his back on it. So you see, it doesn't mean to say that when we walk by faith we all follow the leader except the one leader that matters most because the self-same faith may lead you in one direction and me in another. But of course there's another purpose and another reason in this too. This is where our subject of right division comes in and dispensational truth. You say, what, did Joseph, although they may not have bothered about speaking about it, but it was dispensationally right for Joseph to go to Egypt and sit on the throne. But the 400 years were up when Moses was on the scene and God intended that he should be the leader of that people and take them out. So it was dispensationally wrong for him to do exactly the very same thing that Joseph did in the right sense. So we come back. Enoch was translated. Translated. 
Well, now you might like to get a little bit further light on this word translated, and so we'll go to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verse 16. Acts of the Apostles 7, 16. Verse 15, So Jacob went down into Egypt, and died he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sychem, and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. Now that word was carried over, is the word translated. The word translated. These men were dead. Jacob went down and he died and our fathers and they were translated. They were just carried over out of Egypt into the land of promise. So that's the meaning of the word, to be carried over, completely translated out of one dominion into another. Come back to Colossians. He has rescued us and he has translated us. Now we were rescued, rescued from the authority of darkness. And he doesn't say, and have translated us into the authority of light. But he puts it the other way. Instead of saying authority, he says kingdom. And instead of saying light, he says his dear son. But you can quite see that he's still talking of the same thing. But using other expressions. Some people misunderstand our attitude. We for the purposes of discrimination, speak of some part of scripture as dealing with kingdom truth and some part dealing with church truth. Now that's simply a human division to try to make things easy. But it can be misunderstood. Because there's no idea on our part that we want to eliminate the word kingdom. Well, if we wanted to, we couldn't, but it's there. Here in Colossians, although we have nothing whatever to do with the kingdom of the people of Israel and the inheritance of the land of Palestine. Yet, here's a kingdom which is open to us. And so, I think we, we come to see at long last that the word kingdom is universal in its embrace. The kingdom of God is all-embracing. It includes the earth, and the heavens, and any sphere that's above the heavens, they can't be outside the sovereignty or the kingdom of God. It includes Israel and God's purposes for them. It includes the church of the one body and God's purposes for them. And every conceivable place or happening, whether it's good or bad, can never be beyond the control and the sovereignty of the living God. So we need not boggle at the thought that suddenly we thought we were in the church of the one body and now we find we're in the kingdom. Oh, that's not saying two things, that's only saying it from another angle. And then, the saints of the holy place in the light. We're delivered from the authority of darkness and we're translated into the kingdom. Now it says in our version, of his dear son. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? But it's even more so. The actual words are, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And when he puts it like that, it's stressing the love that's connected with that Son. Into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now in Ephesians, 
The Apostle Paul has used an expression that he very seldom uses, accepted in the Beloved. And in Colossians, he uses another expression that he doesn't repeat anywhere else, the kingdom of the Son of his love. As though, when he does use the word, he gives it all the richness and the fullness that you could imagine will go with it. A person may have a little quibble over this. Say, now look, we are translated, so we're not here. Like they look for Enoch, I couldn't find it. All right, friends, all right, look at chapter 2 of Colossians. I didn't write Colossians, but I read this here. Verse 20. Wherefore, if he be dead or if he died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. So the apostle is acting on it. He says, why as though living in the world? Well, they said, we are living in the world. You've addressed a letter to the faithful brethren in Colossae. And Colossae is a city in this world. Always says, I know that. I know that. You are here. But, in the purpose of God, and as a consequence of redemption, you're no longer living in the world. You're here, but you, you've suddenly become, in spirit, like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, tent dwellers. Abraham came out from a city, and he was no mere wandering sheik. If you've got any acquaintance with the discoveries of archaeology, you'll realise that Abraham could have said what Paul said, that he was a citizen of no mean city. He could have got a book out of the library, Abraham could, and they've got some of the books still. And there's every evidence that it was a wonderful place of culture, Ur of the Chaldeans. And yet when he responded to the call of God, he was willing to live in tents, in the very land of promise, because something had gripped his heart and made it possible for him to be quite willing to be a tent dweller, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He became a pilgrim and a stranger. Just in the same spirit, the children of Israel, when they were brought out, translated out across the Red Sea, when the time came for them to go into the land, they told the surrounding kingdoms that were in their way, we will keep to the highway, we'll walk on our own feet, we'll pay for our own bread, all we want to do is ask you permission to let us go through, that's all. So that's what the Apostle means. Why as though living in the world? As our Saviour put it from another angle, you are in the world, but you're not necessarily a cogwheel that belongs to the world. You see many things that move you, and sometimes you're tempted to try. But strictly speaking, you're not here, not in that sense. You can't alter this poor old world. You haven't been sent into this world to alter it. You've been sent into this world that you may be redeemed and prepared for a glory and be instrumental in leading others out of it, but not dabbling about with it or try to patch the poor old thing up. Although that sounds perhaps rather cruel. Well now we have verse 13. Then verse 14 follows. In whom 
we have redemption. Now here's the other word. And redemption through his blood. The apostle doesn't hesitate to say that. In Ephesians, it's the same thing, the first chapter, seventh verse. In whom we have redemption through his blood. In the epistle to the Romans, it's the same thing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All the way through. In fact, the one thing that changes not from the door of the Garden of Eden until you come to the city that's descending from heaven is that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. We haven't been delivered from the authority of darkness by the power of God only. We have been delivered by the fact that he has paid the price. He has settled the terms. He has dealt with sin righteously and suffered for it. It's a moral issue. And so, we want to guard against some who take the line, well, we can quite understand that in the early primitive days they could dabble about with sacrifices and the shedding of blood. But of course, by the time you get to the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount, then, of course, we are done with it. That isn't true. Even in the Gospel, according to Matthew, before Christ died, he said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And then the moment the epistles come along to describe what he did, it's the cross of Christ which becomes the central feature, and it's the shedding of blood that is atoning and redeeming and is the basis of forgiving. In whom we have redemption. The word redemption is just a, a, a compound of the word to loose. In the Greek language, luo, L-U-O, is I loose. And a ransom is a neutron. And a ransom can be an anti-neutron, an equivalent one. And then the redemption is aponeutrosis. You've got the new in the middle of it all the time. It's something that sets free. Let's be sure of that. Luke, the fourth chapter, where we get the word which is translated forgiveness in the quotation which our Saviour makes from the prophet Isaiah. Luke 4, 16, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. That word deliverance is the word translated forgiveness. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty. That's the word forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is not merely letting you off, or excusing you. It's delivering you, and setting you free from the consequences of your sin and its bondage. I know I've told you before this little incident, but as this is being recorded, these other folks might as well be inflicted with it as well. Sometimes a little thing like I'm going to tell you may remain in your memory when other things go. Many, many years ago down in Allgate, some of the friends with whom I was associated 
rented a small shop and we made it into a little mission among the Jewish people. And I worked out a card and put in the window the text without the shedding of blood no remission. Now the word remission in Hebrews is the same word as the forgiveness. So it's here. So you may say that Colossians is an entirely different subject or calling or sphere from Hebrews. Oh yes it is. But it's all going back to the one basis. Colossians and Ephesians and Hebrews, they all come back at last to the necessity for the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Well, I put this card in the window and then a little boy, little Jewish boy, he came to read it. We put it there in order that he should. But he'd been told by his people to keep away from us Christians because at certain times in the year we sacrificed little boys, you know, all that sort of thing. They said the same thing about the Jews in the Middle Ages, so they were only having their own back. So this little boy read this quickly, and he called out to his friends, he said, Hey, don't you go in there, he says. They've got in the window without shedding of blood, no admission. That was my text, friends, I took it. It wasn't what it said in Hebrews, but it was quite good. Without shedding of blood, no admission. No translation, no being made fit, no glory, oh no, no admission. So out of that very peculiar distorted text came another truth. It is true for us as it was when it was put to those children. Well now this leads us to the next great section in the Epistle to the Colossians, in the Epistle to the Colossians, starting with verse 15. We now turn away from the work that has been done to consider the worker, to consider the one who has done it all. And we start off with words that will hold us for a time, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. But that we will leave. I think we've seen enough this evening to encourage our hearts to go back again and again to these wonderful epistles which were given to the Apostle Paul for us. There to read of this calling. There to realise our fitness. There to realise something of what our inheritance is. In closing, let me anticipate a subject which we'll have to come to later in Colossians. Go back to verse 12 once more. We have been made all sufficient to be partakers of the inheritance. Now chapter 3, verse 22. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Associated with the inheritance is a reward that you may win or you may lose. But the inheritance itself is absolutely in the hands of God with that guarantee that he has made us all sufficient for it without ourselves lifting a little finger. So may the Lord grant his blessing upon the meeting this evening to you who are listening now. And will you join with us in prayer that the recording of it may be abundantly blessed to those perhaps we shall never see until we 
together with them, are manifested in that same glorious light.